Hey everyone, how's it going? It's Connor Devine here. This is Money and Plants. Welcome back to the podcast. This is pretty much a special edition of the podcast. It's a little bit different to the previous shows that I've been putting out there over the last 12 months. This is a conversation that I have with an author, uh, a new author. His name is Mr. Chris McGill, originally from Oma, but he's been building a new life for himself and a career for himself over the last 25 years in London. Chris has just released his new memoir. It is called The Million Dollar Irishman, from John Street to Wall Street. And over the last few weeks, I have received a copy of the book and I've read the book. And it really is a fascinating memoir of life and all of the trial and tribulations that life brings to people's door. And in this case, it's Chris McGill from Oma, County Tyrone. It's a fascinating conversation and, you know, me and Chris had earlier this week. And what I was really trying to do with this was to touch on some of the subject matter which was in the book which I felt was very empowering and very important to talk about because what I want to do with this podcast is hopefully educate, empower and inspire people to make progress in their own lives. And what I know is following reading Chris's memoir, The Million Dollar Irishman, there are lots of takeaways, lots of takeaways from that book. And it's something that Chris is really, really proud of and he should be. And one of the interesting things that comes out of her conversation, actually, is that it's taken nearly 15 odd years for Chris to release this book. And actually, he was writing away for the first few years and he met someone who put him off the whole idea of writing a book. And it struck a chord with me because how many times in our own lives are we looking to do stuff? We have our own plans in place. We're all very excited. And then you meet one or two people and then say, That's never going to work, you're wasting your time. And they knock you off track and you forget about it. And I think the first takeaway that I'll share with you now before we get stuck into this conversation is a characteristic that Chris has in abundance. And probably you have too if you're listening to this. All of us have this. It's resilience. It's resilience and a will to keep going in life. And there are a number of takeaways from this conversation which which I felt was excellent uh, this morning. And I just hope that you get some value from it. Without further ado, let's talk to Chris McGill, the Million Dollar Irishman. Do you own your own business? And how has the pandemic affected your business? Maybe you're fortunate enough in that the business is going really well. Interestingly, one of the impacts of the pandemic is that some businesses are actually doing much better now than they were last year. However, unfortunately, for many business owners, the opposite has happened. And many businesses are now under serious pressure from creditors, from banks, and they are concerned about what the next few months holds for them. If that's you, if that relates to you, then you need to get in touch with the GDP Partnerships Pandemic Recovery Team. This year, GDP set up the Pandemic Recovery Team to help 100 businesses survive and thrive as we get to the end of this year. www.gdpni.com Check out their LinkedIn page, Facebook and Twitter 
But if you're a business owner and you need some help, get in touch with GDP Partnership. Chris McGill, the million dollar Irish man from Oma and County Tyrone. It's a great privilege for me to be speaking to you this lovely Friday morning from uh, my studio here in Belfast. How are you keeping? Very well, Connor. Thank you. I'm in London. Uh, it's quite a dull day here, but I'm, I'm all set up for my media uh, presentations these days. I've got my LED lights and my Logitech webcam, and uh, I'm all set up. Excellent. Well, look, I know I, I've I've obviously I wanted to speak to you. You came on my radar. Actually, I've been following your stuff on LinkedIn, and I have a, a business demographic uh, who 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 is listening to the podcast, and I would encourage people to follow uh, Chris on LinkedIn. But I also you also came on my radar. I you've got this new book out. Um, I have to say it's been really well promoted. It seems to be doing really well on Amazon. Um, I've read it. Uh, I really enjoyed it and I, I reached out to you and we're now talking about it and there's a number of strands in the book but I just wanted to say I know you're on a number of shows over the weekend and over the next couple of weeks but congratulations you have made it on to Money and Plants so really well done Chris. You left, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this slightly maybe different but you left Merrill Lynch, I'm going to go back to the start but you left Merrill Lynch in 2001 I think nearly 20 years ago and you're currently MD of of your investment yeah. company right now, is that correct? Over the last 15 years then, so you've been sort of, it's taken you a while to write this book, is that is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, I started writing, in, I actually left in 2002, and I started writing um, six months, in, sort of October time, a few months after I left Merrill Lynch. It had always been my plan to write, um, the plan was to write a book which I would then called The Humpty Dumpty Man, and um, the, whole, the whole part, piece of thesis of that was my near-death car crash. But that was tying into an emotion of that I'd got to the very top of my mountain. I was a managing director. I was country manager for Ireland. I was earning a million dollars a year. Uh, I was very unhappy, and I didn't actually like going to work. It's, it's quite a funny thing to talk about, but it's true. So um, at the time, I used to say, you know, I had my George Best moment and worked out my million-dollar-year job. Um, looking back, I think it was a crazy thing to do, and I think for all sorts of reasons, it wasn't terribly well managed by, by the organization, who lost out considerably after I left, because when I went, so too did my revenue line, and, and the pay relative to revenues was minor. So, um, you know, that was a bad decision for them, but it certainly was a bad decision by me as well. But something I felt that I needed to do at the time, so Humpty Dumpty Man evolved, over three, three um, periods of writing, three six-month blocks. When I finished all that, I met J.K. Rowling's literary agent, Christopher Little, in a restaurant in London. Uh, he'd been there since lunchtime and wasn't my, uh, my, my, my person I was supposed to be meeting. But after listening to the story as I began to talk, he said, Oh, no, not another Irish sob story. So uh, I stopped writing then and didn't write another word for uh, eight years. Um, so I went back to the scene of my near-death car crash in Uri by pure chance um, in uh, 2014, New Year's Eve, 2013, 14, and had some flashbacks, and that inspired me to start to write again, and I started to uh, force some flashbacks. I went down the road at you know X, X, X miles an hour, and in a now deserted road, it's no longer the main roads, bypass. And uh, it was like a, a racing track circuit as I bombed down the road. So anyway, uh, I had some flashbacks and, and then I, I proceeded to, of course, that day as I got on an early flight, 
had some more. And so then the story evolved very well. I had a publishing offer shortly after that. But then to cut quickly through to today, I, I, um, I ended up with um, the lockdown last year saying, look, I've just got to finish this story or I'm never going to finish it. Um, and, and, and then I did. And then I self-published last October. Um, and uh, the Humpty Dumpty Man did very, very well, but it didn't have any of the media. Vertical's Blitz that the Million Dollar Irishman has today. Um, and where the difference lies is um, a lot of people quickly said to me, oh, I love the story. You know, you, you tell about your growing up in Oma, growing up in the Troubles, um, my relationship with my brother, you know, which um, was fraught for many, many years, two decades of no relationship and um, then reconciliation. And that's a very, very important part of the story. For me, the most important part of the story. So that evolved rather than was the plan. Um, and so by the time I finished the book, I always intended to finish it with Paul, my brother, uh, and his backstory, which is pretty awful. Um, and so um, I did that, and then, and then I published it, and it got great reviews. So, so far between the two books, um, The Humpty Dumpty Man, which is about 80% of the second book, The Million Dollar Irishman, um, I've had 110 reviews at 90 plus or five star reviews, so I can't argue with that. Um, that's Amazon. But anyway, um, I talked to some PR guys in Dublin, friend of friends, and they said, "Look, you're targeting the wrong audience here. You need to get on to the business aspects. You know, the real life, the Merrill Lynch, the real big deals, and everything else. And 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 you know, this is your target market." They said, "Young professionals, young business people." people who want to do what you did, which is go from absolutely nowhere to top dog and a big investment bank. Um, and so that's the, that's the whole story. So we have like three or four different elements, the Oma, Northern Ireland, orphan kids story, back to school, and then various genres and reading, like a great book uh, from Cara Westover called Educated. Everyone should read it, it's a great book. Um, stuff like Shuggy Bain, which won the Booker Prize, which is a horrific tale of um, growing up in Glasgow around booze, and I had a lot of that as well. Uh, and then um, growing, then making my way out of there and, and becoming successful, and then hitting the roadblock of working class boy amongst all these old Etonians and, and Oxbridge types and, 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 the, and the sort of glass ceiling that came there. While I overcame the glass ceiling, the overcoming of it, Put me off the whole idea of wanting to be there. So I, I got to the top of my mind and I became a managing director. I was, um, you know, the Million Dollar Club, but I didn't want to go to work. Yeah. And so I started writing my life story, and that uh, is the whole story. And I must tell you one thing before I move on to question answers. Um, I got a great text just this morning from someone who's reading the Audible version of my story. Now, the Audible version, guys, everyone listening. Is really where it goes. It's read by a by a friend of mine from Oma, who's with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Colin Gormley, and it's just fabulous. And and actually, I've listened to it twice since it was published in Audible on March the 11th. So whatever that is, that's just over two weeks. Um, so it says here, hi Chris, uh, I've so far found uh, it harrowing listening to your description of the post-accident recovery and the death of your parents. And the general loneliness of being a young child growing up without the safety of a healthy, loving family. I've more to go yet, but let you know my thoughts at the end. And then she says, by the way, I love the description of the Guinness bottling in the family pub. So there we go. That, that, I think I've covered everything there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope I've set the scene for you. Do, do, do you know the one thing I would, I always try and look at things slightly differently, hopefully to lots of different people, but... 
whenever you're whenever you're talking there about that, and that's why I I whenever I was reading the book, and I was trying to plug the gaps in two thousand and one to now, and what you've just said there is is a great example for people because you're pretty much set out that over the last twenty years you were sort of put off. I mean, how many people are put off from conversations that we have with others to not pursue their dreams or not progress their own ideas because of how other people make you feel? And you parked that for a number of years and then you revisited that. And then over the last 15 years, I think a number of traits come through, but one has to be your determination and your resilience and your sort of to, to get this book done. And I think that's a really important part of what you've just said there because I've written a couple of books myself and there's so many people in life that are pushed back and change their own sort of pathways in life because of the views of others. And having read the book in the last three or four weeks, there is a number of strands that I want to go into now with you because I think it's very, very empowering and it's very important for people to understand because a lot of the stuff that you went through, which I now know in the book, most of us are going through this stuff every day. And, 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 and one of the central themes that I've picked out of the book is this whole idea of trauma and how we deal with trauma. And if I just mention this to you, but you know, if I look at the traumatic events that you went, went through in your own life to now, and you're still a young man at 58, I think, is you, know, you talk about being a, a, an orphan where your dad died when you're young, your mum died when you're young, you know, I've, I'm very fortunate my parents are still alive. I haven't had to go through that traumatic experience. You talk about the relationship that you had with your brother, which was terrible for a couple of decades. He's now passed away, the trauma of dealing with a brother dying. You talk about the car accident at 25 years of age, where you nearly died, trauma again. You talk about managing your gambling addiction, trauma again. And then the pressure of going into Merrill Lynch, one of the biggest investment banks in the world every day. I mean, I don't, I don't work in a big organization. I started my own small organization. But I do know lots of people like you who go into that environment every day. And I, I can only imagine that it's highly pressurized. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I want people to read the book and I want people to listen to the audio. But one of the things I'm really interested in asking you, and I'm really interested in your, your, your uh, response to this is, how do you deal with trauma? How have you been able to deal? And I know your answer now would be different to your 25-year-old self, but how would you share with people and advise people to deal with traumatic events in their own life? Well, a great question. Um, I would say right away that um, you're addendum to the first part of the question, which is, you know, uh, my response today would have been different to what I would have said when I was 25. Because one of the things about writing a book, and I encourage everyone to, write some form of a book, uh, getting to the end of a, of a proper novel, is, uh, I'm sorry, book of 300 pages, it's very, very hard, but nonetheless, it's good to get into your own brain, so I've learned a lot about myself over the years, Connor, you know, uh, um, I learned a lot about my relationship with my brother over the years, you know, and, um, and, and the answer to your question is, I've always had a feeling, you know, I'm very single-minded, as you say, I mean, what do you do when you're an orphan, you just get on, right, and you know, I'll give you an example. I was a county champion boxer, and I was in the boxing ring 13 or 14 times, but no family member ever saw me box. That's an incredible fact. Uh, I have uh, four kids myself, and, and I have a 13-year-old, uh, just turned 13, uh, who I spent a whole lot of time with, and, and all of the kids go flying them around here, there, and everywhere. I 
the idea that, that you'd go for years literally of boxing and nobody would ever turn up to see it is incredible. So it gives you an absolute um, unfortunate um, single-mindedness, you know. Um, and, and I actually often said to myself, you know, people said, well, well, what was your core strength, Chris? You know, and the answer is, how much can you take? Now, Connie, you'll identify with that. So I'm quite good at taking the pain. You know, it's one of the lines I use quite a lot in the book, you know. Whether it be big losses in gambling, you know, I'd take the pain and be all right tomorrow. Um, whether it be in the city, you know, I've got the stress of, you know, a bad position that's going wrong day after day. Um, and in the city, the, the, the fund manager's great saying, I used to be an asset manager, a fund manager, I used to be a buy-side analyst, and I moved over to being a broker service these people. And the old saying is that, um, you know, the, the trade is yours as long as it's going badly and it's the asset manager's if it's going well. So there's another term for that, which is you're only as good as your last trade. So there is that constant pressure of, of needing to win every day. So I think I was very well equipped for my single-mindedness and my personal determination. And, and you know, I have a phrase in the book, which, which I should, I'm not being rude, but I do use it. And it's written out on the spine, in fact, yeah. the spine of the book, you know, which is, here, you know, I'm Chris McHale, WTFRU. Now that was a defensive mechanism, you know, because I, you know, I, these guys would be coming at you. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You know, everyone's trying to get the client, and I had a lot of them. Um, and people would want my clients because I was generating $28 million a year myself, you know, across five accounts. Most people had one or two that paid them more than two. I had five. You know, I was Wayne Rooney. You know, I was the top performing um, guy in the whole of Europe, Middle East, UK and Europe, Middle East Africa, EMEA, as they call it. Um, and, um, you know, so people wanted my piece, and it was a very hostile world, so I'd go around saying, oh, no, I'm Chris McGill. There you go. So I, I, I often, um, I think um, most people that I've ever met, and me included, were, were all actors. And, and the analogy I use that in, in, in the morning time, whenever I'm getting, the, I'm getting the kids ready for school, I'm Clark Kent. But as soon as I go out through that front door, I'm Superman. And I'm Superman and I come home again at six o'clock. And I think, I don't know if it's, a, if it's an Irish thing, but I do think, and I see, you know, Irish people I think are particularly resili resilient because you grew up in the 70s. I was born in, in, in 77 and I grew up in Cookstown in the 80s. I think you were were maybe born in the 60s and you grew up in the, in the 70s there. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, what, what you know, Gabor Mate is, is, a, is a doctor uh, I've been following. He's one of the top medics in the world uh, for addiction. Um, he runs the clinic in, in Vancouver. And I've learned, uh, and I would encourage any, any of my, my listeners uh, to, to look up Dr. Gabor Mate. But I'm, I'm interested in, in your own views. I mean, you've You've seen your brother in terms of the self-medicating, the addiction, reliance on alcohol, the gambling side of things. How do you think that manifested itself? And, and, and obviously it came to a tragic end with your brother, but with yourself, I mean, you seem to have come through that. Are, are, there, are those battles or demons that you're still fighting or have you been able to cut the cord? So there's two questions there. Have you been able to cut the cord in terms of the gambling side of things? Yeah, he was a chronic alcoholic, but I was never a chronic gambler. You know, my wife would dispute this and say, oh, yeah, well, yeah. So I, there is a, I can't be absolutely clear on that, but remember that I started gambling at 12 years old. I was carrying the bets from the pub to the next door movie shop, and people would give me the extra pennies, and I'd bet the pennies, and, you know, and I could do because, because we were part of the pub, and it was all part of the umbilical cord between the pub and the bookie shop, and then the bookie 
excuse would pay me for carrying the bets. On a Saturday, I'd gamble that as well. So for me, it was controlled gambling. I mean, I, I always had a big thing about winning because there was no pot of money, you know. So I was getting this money and couldn't afford to lose it. So for me, it was always very, very structured all the way through. So I would actually say that I was never a um, um, compulsive gambler, not in any material way, you know, not a, mostly in a 99% of it was structured. And, and I did stop one day when I was making a lot of money. Uh, I was no longer in touch because one of the things about my gambling was, and this is probably the, not the answer you want to hear, but one of the things about my gambling was I knew everything about racehorses, everything. You know, I'm, I'm having an encyclopedic brain, dare I say, and, and I knew everything. So people, nobody knew more. I talked to hundreds of people and I knew more. Simple as that. And so when it's the same in the city, you know, you have to know everything about all these stocks, and I did. Um, so for me, it was for me it was always structured was my opinion on the matter, and you know, but of course I did some very dumb things around gambling as well, and so I was actually very pleased to stop because I'd lost touch with the knowledge base. You know, I, I didn't need the money anymore. You know, I lost the, uh, I didn't feel that, that I cared enough about losing. So if I dropped five grand, I'd say, oh, what the hell? You know, and that's the wrong approach. So so definitely a problem, not chronic. Um, and I did stop and I haven't gambled for, I don't know, 20 something years. Um, I have the odd punt here and there, it doesn't make any difference to me, I just don't know anymore. But, but going back to my, to my brother, that was very different, you know, so he was 14 when they expelled him, and of course they gave him a bad beating first, Christian Brothers. And then of course, looking at it now, and I only come to terms of some more recent times, that they had to get him out because they'd abused him, and then they got him out, and in fact he wasn't abused and beaten by a Christian brother, he was by a senior lay teacher, uh, who I know very well and, and know his family. Um, but anyway, um, the thing about that was um, they called home and got my eldest sister, who was 17. Um, and I remember this is the height of the, the war in Verticomas, you know, there was no social services, no church, and now the school were rejecting us. So, um, so Paul um, got badly beaten up, such that they called home, and, and Paul came in, and my sister answered and said, um, because the pub, we had a phone, you know, most people didn't have a phone in those days, 1975, um, and said, um, yeah, um, which one are you? And my sister, she said, I'm Marie, I'm the eldest. And she said, you better come and get your brother, to which she replied, which one? This is the Christian brothers, you better come and get your brother, which one? Paul. So she went there and took him home and put him to bed. He was so badly beaten up. Um, and then another month later, they expelled him. The whole thing is harrowing. So from there, he went crazy on booze. You know, he's a poor lad. Um, and, um, you know, we, we had booze and we were growing up in the pub. There were no parents. You know, the thing was a crazy world. Uh, at, you know, really bad time in the troubles, unemployment. And so, so his addiction was very different to mine. Let me put it that way. Um, and he... Um, Went sober then, a couple of quick statistics. I went back to school, I bummed around in boogie shops all day and that's what I did, and consuming all this information about horses. And he um, was basically working and drinking. And he's a tall lad and I'm not, so he could get away with it. He looks, he looks 18 and 16 and so on. Um, and so then uh, I went back to school at 18 and he being 18 months older than me, went into his first alcohol treatment center at 18. So then another couple of years later, he went 18 years sober. Um, and it was at, during that period that, that we reconciled. And, and, and I should say quickly that the reconciliation was total and complete. 
you know, the, the inverted commas problem was not actually a real problem. And anyone who's listening here today, get on the phone to your loved ones and make up the problem because it isn't actually a problem. Blood is always thicker than water. And, and childhood relationships last forever. And, and anyway, um, Paul then had a midlife crisis, went back on the booze. So he called me up and said, would you be my um, next of kin? He didn't call me up, it's in the story, but it's a quick answer. Um, and I said, yeah, of course. I had no idea that this was going to be a factor I needed to consider, but not very long later, he was dead. Yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a deeply uh, engaging part of the book. The, the story runs throughout, and I think I'll say at this point, um, most people I know in Ireland are affected either directly or indirectly by addiction, and it's certainly uh, it's 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 a it's an area that I think you've addressed really really well. That relationship flows through the book, and um, I think it's very very powerful. And there's lots of lessons we can take from that. I want to ask you about a couple of other things which are equally uh, potentially as 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 traumatic. I was playing Irish League football in 1998 in August um, at a uh, Stangmore Park. I think we were playing Linfield that day when the Oma bomb went off. And um, that had a huge impact on me, as did the T-Ban bomb, which uh, went off and, and, and caused a huge destruction. I was 16 walking from the Gaelic pitch in Dungannon to get the bus home, and I actually heard the bomb go off at half five, the T-Ban one, which totally divided the town for, for many years. But um, I was just wondering, because you talk about this, and then you went on, obviously, to raise one and a half million pounds for the Oma fund, and the, the, it's all in the book. But how did that, as an Oma man, like, you know, you know, and, and I, 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 get, I get this, but our listeners will be interested in this. How did, how did that make you feel the day the bomb went off? And then all of the emotion around that whole traumatic, which is ongoing today as the Oma survivors try and get justice. How, how has that Oma tragedy affected you, would you say? First emotion was a line that I, you know, I have these various defensive mechanisms. And one of them for me was never cry at somebody else's funeral. You know, I've been to family funerals and people come in, cousins or strangers even crying, and they're going, oh, well, please, you know, I don't want you around me at this time. So, so I have, my first emotion was like, this is some of this, this is, this is not me. But I went to the town a few days after the bomb. I was in Dublin on business. So I was in London, came to Dublin for a meeting and on the Monday. So the bomb was on Saturday, 15th of August. Um, and it was actually with a firm who made bombs of all things, Marconi. Um, so I traveled up Roma that evening and, and then it, my, my emotions changed. So I went from being trying to be, you know, strong about it to being, oh my God, this is awful in, in a bomb site and everything else. And, and then, of course, um, three of my nieces and nephews were, were on the bombs at the scene, you know, as my nephew, um, my, my eldest niece was blown off her feet and could have died, simple. But I ended up with quite minor injuries, but a whole lot of mental scars. Um, the other niece was okay, and third person, my nephew, uh, the police said to him, uh, "Can you drive a car, son?" The message being, he was going to be asked to ferry the, the bomb victims to the local hospital. So, so, so that also added to the sort of general anger of the whole thing. I wrote a letter that evening to the various newspapers. It was printed as the headline uh, story in the Irish Independent. Um, and anyway, then, then I. I I went away thinking, look, don't cry at somebody else's funeral. I can't help here. What can I do? You know, I attended a couple of weeks and thought, no, this, I should get out of here. You know, it's not right. Um, so a couple of months later, I saw the victims on the Late Date Show, and, and, and it just made me say, look, you've got to do something. What can you do? Uh, and I got involved and um, 
presented myself to the Oma Fund and said, look, here's what I can do. I can be the chief corporate fundraiser in London and so on. So we set up two, two groups, one in Dublin, one in London, the Friends of Oma, which I was on both. Uh, and I've directed both effectively, and uh, we raised one and a half million. Most of the money came from lunches with Tony Blair and, and Bertie Heron, but we had several other events uh, selling CDs for the launch of the Omicron CD, the relaunch, uh, raised $50,000 in the foyer at Merrill Lynch, and to work colleagues at Merrill Lynch, we, we had a big event at Kerr Racecourse. Uh, but all in all, it was one and a half million. But how do I feel about it? I've never met a victim of the bomb. Um, it's been entirely arms and transparent. I feel very proud of it, actually, um, and um, I think it's an old saying, if you can, do, and I did, and I'm very, very happy about it. I think it's a, it's a wonderful um, contribution that, that you've made, and you, you again, deal with that uh, difficult issue really well uh, in the book. Look, I want, to, uh, I want to wrap it up in the next few minutes, but I wanted to ask you, you took a job in Smith Newcourt Securities in 1991, which was then acquired in 1995 by Merrill Lynch. And I, if my mathematics are correct, you were still in around 30 then, okay? Yeah. And I'm just really interested, um, because you're ahead of me on the curve slightly, and I'm still a very young man. And uh, I'm wondering what advice you would give to your 30-year-old self, knowing all of what you know now, the business world and the business environment, it's highly stressful. Um, you do need your wits about you um, and you really worked uh, at the top in terms of on the floor with Merrill Lynch and I'm just wondering for my listeners yeah. what kind of advice would you give to your 30 year old self I'd say the first caveat is that business and, and business is, is, is constant is 24-7 right? so if you're not doing it 24-7 don't bother um, secondly it's not for everyone uh, thirdly, if you have an ambition, go for it. You can achieve it. Um, I mean, I have, I have one of my great faults, I should have indicated earlier, was, you know, I had a, a, an inbuilt mechanism that, that said that if I lose today, I'll win tomorrow. You know, it was actually very effective in my life and, and, and did help a great deal. Um, but the, the message there is that, you know, take the knockdowns and get up again because there's no other way. Um, you know, you have to keep going, you have to remain positive, you have to remain ambitious. And don't look in the backward mirror. I, I never look back. And the things, mistakes I made yesterday, I blank them, I'm moving on to tomorrow. That's it. Always. Excellent. One, one of the fi final thing, one of the things that I'm very aware of is I, I have had a lot of help and I've worked with a lot of really good people over the last 20 odd years, which have helped subconsciously and consciously mentor me. And, you know, I'm just wondering from yourself, you're extremely well-rounded, you have great experience. Um, what, did you have many people in the professional setting who helped you develop the skills that you now clearly have? I, I would say that you, everybody, no matter who they are, needs help. That's a matter of fact. So, so I identified seven or eight people in the book and said that, um, you know, significant males, as I call them, at different times in my life, Without those people at different times in my life, I would not have made the leaps, the jumps from place to place. You know, well, this is just going back to Oma Tech at 18. They were great guys and, and really helped me evolve into the person that led me to going on to Queens, which is a bloody miracle, and then on to Deloitte, uh, Dublin, with also investment banks, Smith & Court in London. And in between, I lost the court case for the car crash between Dublin and London. But, you know, uh, when I lost the court case, I'm with the barrister, 
who was one of the significant males. He was a great guy, and he became a high court judge afterwards. And I came out of the, the case and went down to him and said, he was saying, oh, we'll appeal. And, you know, and I said, look, it's over, you know. We gave it our best shot. It's over. And for me, it was like a form of an exorcism because it had been something hanging around my neck for such three or four years at that point. So to answer your question, yes, everybody needs a mentor. Everybody should tune into things like this podcast. Everybody should listen all the time. You know, I, I, I always listen. I spend a lot of time walking, um, doing my 10,000 steps at my age, but also reading books while I walk. So I'm, I'm educating myself with books like Educated, Chuggy Bain, Where the Crawdads Sing, and also, I should say, The Million Dollar Irish One. <laughs> and um, yeah. I should also say, um, you know, on the back page of this, you should look it up online. This is a great little sex it took so long to write and condense the whole story into the back page, yeah. but it's there. But also, as I said, the audible with, with Colin Gormley's heavenly. I think I've got a great story to tell. I think it's motivational. And, um, you know, I, I think I'll be uh, in 20 years time, I'll be doing things like that saying about the million dollar hours. And I don't think I'll write another book, by the way. But, but you know, I would encourage anyone who feels it's in them to do it, go for it. And, and I'd be happy to help them with indications of what to do in general terms. Well, I'd just like to uh, con congratulate you once again. Um, one of my mentors who unfortunately I never got to meet was the great Jim Rohn. And Jim Rohn says you'll be the same person in five years time, apart from the people that you meet and the books that you read. And it's, it's something that I do say to lots of people who I speak to. So listen, Chris McGill, the million dollar Irishman from John Street to Wall Street. It's been an absolute pleasure. I was delighted to get you on to Money and Plants. I know my demographic will love the story. I encourage people to buy the book, listen to the audio, follow you on LinkedIn. But whatever the future holds for you, Chris, I wish you great health and, and you and the family all the very best. Thank you very much. Hey everyone, that was a great conversation I had earlier this week with Mr. Chris McGill, a very down to earth fella who has just written his memoir i would encourage everyone to read it and study it and try and learn from some of the topics that that chris talks about i think it was um you know life is difficult and it's challenging uh, for me on a very personal capacity uh, i think everyone at some point in time will hit some kind of wall i i speak about this whenever i'm out speaking to to groups and and to kids in school and I think the challenge then for each of us as individuals is then really how are you going to react to the challenge or the change in circumstances in your own life and that's for me personally I had a number of things that happened to me the big one that stands out was being diagnosed with MS at 28 years of age and then it's taken me even to now I'm living with MS 15 odd years and I would split that into three segments of five years five years and five years and I have learned to manage that scenario, that challenge, that huge traumatic event. And just like Chris says then in his memoir and the conversation that we had, he had a number of hugely traumatic instances which he had to deal with as a human being, which started very, very early on actually, through the death of his father, the death of his mother, the troubled relationship that he had with his brother, and then his gambling, and his brother's alcoholism, his brother's death, working in Merrill Lynch, all of the problems and the challenges and the pressure and the stress that comes with working with one of the biggest investment companies in the world. So I think it's a very, very powerful story.
Uh, I think Chris tells it in a very powerful way. But the takeaways for you and me then has to be, well, what traumatic events have I faced actually? And this is something probably I would encourage people to do this exercise if you haven't done it already. And maybe you haven't thought about it in this way. But what events have you had to overcome in your own life? Because each of us are at our own very different stages in life. And then if you stand back and take some time out, and you can normally do this through exercise, you can think about how you are currently maybe reacting to a very traumatic event in your own life. And the one thing that I have learned through my own experience is that at some point in time, it's really important to actually reach out and ask for help. Go and find someone who you trust and have a chat with them, speak to them. I think one of the problems with people today is that we try and deal with all of this stuff, all of this shit, all of our, our challenges and our anxieties and our stress on our own. And one of the observations that I would share with you is that it's those people who reach out and ask for help tend to have better outcomes. On a very personal basis, whenever I was dealing with my MS, I didn't ask anyone for help for five years. If I was given my 28-year-old self advice, I would change that. I would embrace the help. I would ask for help within six to 12 months. I resisted all advances of help. And I think that slowed down my recovery process. So look, it's very powerful. It's very empowering. I hope it inspires some of you, some of the listeners. I hope you get something from it. I hope you maybe examine parts of your own life. Maybe you're going to react differently to a stressful or a traumatic event in your own life today as a result of listening to this podcast. If it affects you in that way, let me know. You can reach me at connor at connordivine.com. The Million Dollar Irish Man by Chris McGill from John Street to Wall Street. Highly recommended reading. You can get it on Audible. Look after yourself, everyone. I'm going to be back with more podcasts over the next number of weeks. I have a new exciting project starting with the podcast. More information coming very, very soon. But until then, look after yourself. And more importantly, look after each other. Thank you.